Let, let me begin with a personal story that I think demonstrates Nelson Mandela's instinct, uh, uh, good instincts as a statesman. Mila mentioned that I was appointed to head the Commission of Inquiry into Public Violence and Intimidation. When, when the negotiation process began in 1990 on the release of Nelson Mandela and his, uh, and his uh, comrades from, from, from many years, decades in prison, the negotiation process began and everybody was very optimistic and thought it would be a, 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 a peaceful and fairly rapid process to democracy. Um, however, as frequently happens, most people were wrong and the, the, it, it's, it's really one of the incorrect descriptions that is common, uh, that one commonly hears, is that South, Africa, that South Africa's transition from racial oppression and apartheid to democracy um, was, was without violence. It was a non-violent transition. In fact, it was a violent transition. Uh, between 10 and 20,000 people were killed between 1990 and 94 during the negotiation process uh, in political violence. And that, that, that took a lot of people by surprise. Nelson Mandela very soon um, stated publicly on a number of occasions that the violence was being stoked by elements in the security forces, in the pro-apartheid security forces, and the violence was intended to bring the negotiation process to a stop uh, in order that the apartheid system would not come to an end but would be perpetuated. That was hotly denied by the, the apartheid government of President de Klerk, the last apartheid president. Uh, he, 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 he ascribed, and many people in South Africa, particularly white South Africans, and in the international community, in this country and in Europe, ascribed the violence to, to tribal enmity between the Zulu-speaking supporters of Chief Butelezi and the mainly uh, Kosa uh, supporters of Nelson Mandela's African National Congress. Mandela said no, he said it, it, it's blacks are killing blacks but they're being, they're being put up to it uh, by elements in the security forces. And that, that violence threatened to destroy, and nearly did destroy, the negotiation process. And uh, in October of 1991, uh, the Commission of Inquiry, which I headed, was set up. Um, I, I, uh, joined, I was joined by four other South African lawyers, two white and two black, one woman. And uh, it, was, it, it came to be known as the Goldstone Commission because the the, the, the correct title was just too long for the media to handle. Uh, the, the full title was the Permanent Commission of Inquiry uh, into, into the Causes of Political uh, Violence and Intimidation. Well, no, no newspaper or television uh, commentator is going to use that, uh, that, that long name. The commission was set up with the agreement, unanimous agreement, of all the parties to the negotiations. That meant that then government of de Klerk, Mandela's African National Congress, Butelezi, and all the other parties uh, that were at the table. And uh, I um, was informed by then Minister of Justice that, that the five names had been agreed unanimously. He said, before you even consider refusing it, he said, bear in mind it'll take us another three months to get unanimity uh, on a different uh, a, a chairman for the committee uh, and the other members. In any event, uh, we, we began our work. I remember the, the date very well because it happened to be my birthday. It was on the 26th of October of 1991. And the first investigation was into a, a massacre that had taken place in one of the black townships uh, outside Johannesburg. And we made very slow progress in the beginning in trying to establish or prove a wrong Mandela's allegation of a third force, as he called it, as he called it, stoking up the violence. And after about three months of not getting any any substantial uh, uh, making substantial progress, I decided because the, the, there was huge media but hype about the Commission and a great deal of expectation. And I decided almost as an act of desperation to put out a report 
dealing with the causes of, of violence in South Africa from a, a chronologically. I started with colonial, with, with colonial rule and talked about uh, um, uh, racial discrimination, about the apartheid system, about corrupt policing, and ended up talking about the political violence between the Encarta Freedom Party and the African National Congress. Bold, bold uppercase letters, I stressed that the, that the report was dealing with the causes of violence in chronological sequence and not in order of current importance. That we were not in a position to do. Our initial reports under the statute that created the Commission, we were created by Act of Parliament and given very wide powers of uh, subpoena, search and seizure, powers which I'm very happy to say would now be unconstitutional under our Bill of Rights. But we had those powers and, uh, and we used them carefully, but, but, but we used them. Under the Act, any reports of our inquiries had to first go to President de Klerk and he would decide when to make them public. And that power he misused uh, in, uh, in, the initial, in the initial reports. He, he would keep our report, get his spin doctors to put a spin on it, and then release it together with a, a government uh, summary of what the report said. And uh, that, 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 that spin was obviously reflected in the, in the, in the media. And in this case, the, the spin that was put on our report was that Goldstone blames a violence on the, on, the, uh, on the ANC, on the African National Congress and in Carter, which was a gross misrepresentation of the report. It, it, it really take, took out the, the last part of a chronological sequence. Nelson Mandela flew, flew in from uh, a trip abroad, a brief trip abroad, uh, the day that the report was issued by the government with the spin on it. And he almost went f or, uh, immediately from the airport to address what was the second meeting of the African National Congress, the second annual convention after it had been unbanned uh, in 1990. And he obviously had read the newspaper reports about, about our report and he castigated it. He said nasty things about me and about the report, uh, and he said it was just, it was just, it was just incorrect. I knew what had happened that he relied on the newspaper reports, but I, I was more than anguished because I realised that it probably spelt the end of our commission. If we didn't have credibility amongst all South Africans, there was no way that our commission could work. If we didn't have the uh, the, the confidence and the participation of the major political parties in particular, there was no way that the Commission could, could continue its work. And uh, I, I, I was uh, in my chambers. I did, I did this work at the same time as I did my full, full work on the uh, then uh, Supreme Court, the, the uh, uh, Supreme Court of Appeal, as it's now called, uh, before the Constitutional Court was set up. And I was mulling how to phrase my resignation and really the end of the commission when my telephone rang. It was three o'clock the next afternoon and there was the familiar voice of Nelson Mandela who had a wonderful habit. He always made his own telephone call. There was never a secretary getting through for, for Mr. Mandela or when he became President Mandela. I think he enjoyed getting through himself and hearing people's reaction to, 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 the, to that unmistakable voice. And there, there he was, and he said, always called me by my first name, he said, Richard, I'm calling for, uh, for two reasons. He said, the first is to apologize to you. He said, I did a terrible thing. I relied on media reports uh, about your report and said some nasty things about it. And he said, I've now read the report and I agree with 99% of it. It's a balanced report and, and, and I really can't apologize enough for having judged it incorrectly. And he said, in fact, I've just been standing next to my motor car and reading it. He said, I've just called a, an international press conference for an hour from now at four o'clock. He said, and that leads me to the second reason for my call. He said, may I, may I say at the press conference that you've accepted my apology? Well, how many leaders would, would do that? I think very few. 
He did it for two reasons. Firstly, he, he, he had a strong sense of, of, of what was right and what was wrong, and, and, and he felt he'd done me an injustice, and the apology I've had no doubt was a genuine apology. But he went further. He realised that if our commission was to continue, he needed to make the public apology. And uh, he had the, the confidence and leadership skills to do that, and we, we came out of it, in fact, stronger than we were uh, before he had said nasty things about the Commission. It led to another result. I immediately uh, sought a meeting with President de Klerk and said to him that, that, the, that his holding back of our reports and releasing them with a spin was, was, was destroying the credibility of the Commission. And I said, I'm not prepared to continue unless you agree to release our reports within 24 hours of receiving them with no comment at all. And he had little, little option uh, but in agreeing to do that. And, and he too was a, uh, had, had, had many of the qualities necessary to make him an outstanding statesman, and he agreed. And from that day, our reports uh, came, out, came out immediately uh, after they were presented. So with that, with that introduction and, 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 and giving you some idea of, the, of, of this wonderful ability and confidence of Nelson Mandela, it takes a confident leader to make a public apology. Unfortunately, there are not many, many of them around. Um, but let me turn to the wider canvas. Um, as you can imagine, South Africa had, had been uh, an oppressive racial uh, country for 350 years. In fact, I remember uh, soon, soon before our first democratic election, uh, we had the first ever state visit from a Dutch Prime Minister, Rud Libbers, came to South Africa with his then Foreign Minister, Peter Koymans, who became a judge in the International Court of Justice. And uh, I, um, uh, I was invited to a reception given by President de Klerk for Prime Minister uh, 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 Libbers. Now, I'll never forget the look on Libba's face when, when, when de Klerk said, Mr. Prime Minister, he said, in three months from now, South Africa will have its first democratic election and bring to an end three centuries of racial oppression that began when you, the Dutch, arrived at the Cape in 1652. And, of course, it was correct, and the look of recognition on, on Ribbler's uh, sort of amused uh, uh, agreement on the face of Ribbler's uh, was unforgettable. But from the, from the perspective of the majority of white South Africans, it was a terrifying prospect that after, as I say, more than three centuries of racial oppression, power was being handed to the black majority. And most whites assumed understandably, that black South Africans would seek revenge, that there'd be anti-white violence, and, and whites were outnumbered by more than 10 to 1. Out of a population of over 40 million, uh, the whites numbered 5 million. And uh, many whites felt that, that the privileges they'd acquired, the property, the wealth, uh, uh, let alone their very lives, uh, would be put in danger if, if power was handed over uh, uh, to, to a black majority. But it was Mandela's probably his greatest skill and his greatest achievement was to convince the white leaders that revenge just wasn't on his agenda and wasn't on the agenda on the agenda of the people he represented. And it was it was his his integrity, uh, his dignity of all his qualities. It's so certainly in my book, his dignity uh, stood out. He was able to convince de Klerk and the other and the other senior members of the uh, of the national party of the governing party uh, that he would not come out of prison seeking seeking revenge. In addition, he convinced the white leaders, and uh, he he uh, didn't have much difficulty because of the history of the African National Congress. He convinced them that they wanted a Bill of Rights written into the new constitution. Now, the, the African National Congress leaders, Mandela in particular, took with them into prison the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They always wanted a democratic, uh, non-racial, non-sexist democracy. 
and that was their policy from the from the 19 early 1950s and the the, the freedom charter was issued in 1956 <coughs> after the ANC consulted widely with all of its constituents with the people of South Africa uh, and they agreed on uh, on a, 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 a on a constitution uh, that that complied with all international fundamental uh, uh, human rights. For white South Africans until 1990, human rights was a swear word. It was synonymous in the eyes of the apartheid government with communism. If you espoused human rights, you were, if not red, you were at least pink. And obviously, in uh, in in South Africa, human rights, all all human rights of black South Africans uh, were, were, were simply trodden on. And all of a sudden, when white South Africans saw the writing on the wall and realized that power was going to be handed to a black majority, whites literally overnight became great supporters of a Bill of Rights. They saw in a Bill of Rights their protection as a minority. Because after all, that's what Bills of Rights are about. They protect the minorities uh, in, uh, in society the majority doesn't need the protection of the Bill of Rights. Uh, they, they have the power uh, to, to, to do what they wish, subject to constraints in the Bill of Rights. And both sides, for coming from opposite corners, white leaders and black leaders, literally fell over each other in trying to get the widest possible Bill of Rights. And they agreed on every provision in the Bill of Rights except one, and that was on the death penalty. The white leaders wanted the death penalty, particularly in light of huge, uh, the, the huge uh, criminal violence uh, that was racking South Africa, and the black leaders didn't want it. Many for moral reasons, and even many more, because the death penalty had been used during the apartheid era uh, against black South Africans. Very few white South Africans were, were, were executed uh, during the apartheid era. Many, many hundreds of black South Africans uh, were executed on the other hand. Um, the, the, that ability was fundamental, the, the, the ability of Mandela to give that confidence to, to white leaders uh, that they wouldn't literally be driven into the sea. Um, Mandela had another skill that was important. And that was to, to treat his opponents and even his enemies with, with, with dignity. He, treat, he, he, he treated people on the assumption that they were decent human beings, even though he may have well known that they were far from being that. But it's, it's, a, great, it's a great skill in leadership, leadership skill. If you treat people as being honest and with integrity, it's difficult for them not to be, or makes it more difficult for them not to be. And uh, Mandela... Had this natural uh, had this natural ability of uh, of doing that. I remember way back in 1981, I was then uh, a chairman of a of, of a not-for-profit called NICRO, that was a National Institute for Crime Prevention and Rehabilitation of Offenders, and it it it, it was quite an important um, 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 non-governmental organisation. And at its annual conference in Bloemfontein. Uh, in, uh, in 1981, the keynote speaker was Professor Sam Dash, who was then at, at Georgetown University. Uh, he had he'd, he'd reached some prominence in the United States. He was the Senate counsel during the Watergate hearings. And uh, he, um, I met Sam and his wife Sarah at Johannesburg Airport, and his, almost his first question to me, he said, you know, I'd like to meet Nelson Mandela. Do you think there's any prospect? And I said, none at all. And he said, why? I said, because 10 days ago, Senator, uh, Senator Ted Kennedy was in South Africa, and he requested a meeting with Mandela, and he was refused on the ground that the government only allowed members of Mandela's family to meet him. And I said, it would be difficult for them 10 days later to admit a non-member, and particularly another American. No American had ever seen Mandela from the time of his incarceration uh, some almost 20 years before. But I said, look, the, the Minister of Justice is, 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 is speaking on the same platform at the opening of our conference. Ask him. And Sam Dash gave a, gave a, a, a very strong anti-apartheid talk, which the Minister complimented him on. Uh, nine years before apartheid began to unravel, 
And, and to cut a long story short, the minister thought it was a good idea for, for, for Sam Dash to meet Mandela because they were investigating already at that time whether Mandela would forswore violence, uh, 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 forswear violence uh, as a condition to his release. Mandela, as it happened, refused. He said he's not prepared to have any conditions imposed on his release. And he went, he, he stayed in prison for another nine years. But Sam Dash told me on the day after his visit that it was the most amazing visit. He said it was like visiting a world statesman. He said this man had been in prison then for almost two decades. And he said in our first, he, they were together for over an hour. He said in the first half an hour, all he was wanting to ask me was about world events, not about himself or South Africa. He was keeping up with, with, uh, with events and he wanted to know what was happening uh, in, the, in the United States and the sanctions against South Africa. And he said at the end of half an hour, he turned to his, to his warders and didn't ask them. He said to them, I now want to take Professor Dash to meet my friends. He said, come along, Professor Dash. And he led the warders and Professor Dash to meet with Walter Sisulu uh, and the other apartheid leaders. The story of Sam Dash's visit, incidentally, appeared only almost a year later in the uh, Sunday magazine of the New York Times <coughs> because Dash had agreed not to go public on his visit at that time because of the embarrassment it would cause. But the story leaked out from, from the South African side and Sam Dash gave a wonderful interview, uh, which one I'm sure can still find uh, on the website of the New York Times. And Sam Dash talked about this, this leadership ability and the impression, the deep impression he made on him. In the, in the time remaining, let me quickly deal with, with what I consider to be Mandela's four important issues, the four important issues on which as a statesman he was not prepared to compromise. You know, it's a great, it's very important. One can't stress enough that, that leaders should be able to compromise on issues that are compromisable, where there's no, where there's no uh, giving up on, on, on important principle, but to be firm and not to compromise on issues of principle. And there were four issues, certainly in, in, uh, in, in my list, that Mandela was not prepared to compromise. The one was that the negotiation process should be a short one and not a long one. If it was up to de Klerk, the negotiations would have taken 15 years. He was in no hurry. It was beginning, and he said there was, there was no hurry to hand over power to the black majority. Let's keep talking. <coughs> well, Mandela limited it to four years, and, and, and that, was, that was his skill as a negotiator. He made it clear he was not prepared to go on indefinitely, and it would have been less than four years uh, but for one massacre at a township called Boi Patong, which in fact uh, brought the negotiation process to an end uh, for some months. It was put on, on track again by, by a great American, uh, Cy Vance, former Secretary of State, who was sent out to South Africa by Butrus Gadi, the Secretary General of the United Nations, to get the negotiations back on track. And Cyrus Vance did a great job and succeeded not well known, and he didn't, wasn't given sufficient credit uh, for the work he did at that time in, uh, in South Africa. The second issue was his insistence on a new constitutional court. He said for similar reasons that led to the new constitutional court in Germany in 1949, he wasn't prepared to have our new constitution that was being drafted, he wasn't prepared to have it under the guardianship of courts that had been appointed by the apartheid government. He wanted a new representative constitutional court to oversee the constitution and to be, uh, 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 and to be its, its, its guardian, as it were. Um, de Klerk didn't want that, obviously. He, he, he was happy to have uh, his judges, of whom 90% were, were, were pro-apartheid, uh, as, as, as the guardians of any new constitution. But he absolutely insisted, and de Klerk gave in, on that, on a condition that at least four of the judges of the Constitutional Court were to be existing judges. In fact, it ended up with six because Mandela wanted them, um, and uh, uh, it, it, we ended up having a court of 11, of, uh, of 11 justices. <coughs> His third, third non-compromisable issue was that the Constitution had to be drafted by a democratically elected constituent assembly. 
Now that was anathema to de Klerk. There, there was really an impasse. De Klerk said, I'm not prepared to allow our new constitution to be drafted <coughs> by a black majority that can get anything at once. He said there has to be a white veto. He didn't put it in those words, but he insisted that there be a white veto on what went into the constitution. <coughs> well, th there were two diametrically opposed views. The, the compromise was a brilliant one, a Solomonic one, that was really the brainchild of the then chairman of the South African Communist Party, Joseph Slover, who at one stage was a colleague of mine at the Johannesburg Bar. And it was Slover who suggested the two-part two process of an interim constitution for two years, uh, elections under it, a Bill of Rights under it, but a constitution that would disappear after two years, uh, but it would contain as a schedule the skeleton of the final constitution. In other words, the constitutional assembly wouldn't be given a blank slate, carte blanche, they would be restricted by the provisions contained in the schedule to the interim constitution. So that, that met both objections. Uh, the Constitutional Assembly democratically elected was to draft the final constitution that met Mandela's demand, but it was constrained by the schedule which, which met the fears of de Klerk. The question arose, obviously, who would determine whether the final constitution complied with the principles? And they said, well, that will have to be done by the constitutional court. Now, if, if Mandela hadn't insisted on a new constitutional court, this couldn't have worked. There's no way that the, the, the apartheid-appointed judges had credibility, sufficient credibility, uh, to, to deal with a very delicate issue of it, what, what turned out to be 11 non-elected justices uh, uh, deciding whether the constitution was constitutional and overriding the wishes of the first ever democratically elected two Houses of Parliament in South Africa. But the court did that. In, our in the first round, we, we rejected the Constitution. It went back to the Constitutional Assembly as, the, as it could under the interim Constitution. They amended it to comply with the objections that we raised. And happily, we were, uh, uh, in both cases, unanimous. Uh, in the second case, agreeing that the Constitution was, quote, uh, uh, constitutional. Um, the the fourth uncompromisable issue was the accountability of the apartheid regime and the African National Congress uh, for, for previous human rights violations. That obviously led to the, to the setting up of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which again was anathema to the apartheid leaders. The last thing they wanted was to be brought to account uh, for the evils of apartheid. And again, there was compromise in the sense that there was no blanket amnesty granted but amnesties were granted for, for discrete um, uh, 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 and complete confessions uh, uh, for crimes in respect of which uh, people came forward with a request of being granted uh, amnesty. So let me, let me wind it up by saying that, that Mandela's instinctive statesmanship uh, really was crucial. We were fortunate in having a de Klerk who, who, who abandoned apartheid, not for any moral reasons. De Klerk abandoned apartheid purely for pragmatic reasons. He realized that apartheid was going to end in a bloodbath. And, and, and the violence I spoke about at the beginning of my remarks uh, was, was, was inconsequential in regard to the bloodbath uh, that, that lay down the road if apartheid wasn't abandoned. And in fact, I remember discussing with Archbishop Tutu the day after de Klerk had given his so-called apology for apartheid before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The tears poured down Archbishop Tutu's face. Uh, as it happened, was sitting the, the, the following whole day with him watching a cricket game in Cape Town. And, and we discussed de Klerk's evidence and, and his apology. And I said to, 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 to Desmond Tutu, I think the reason you were frustrated is that there was no moral content to de Klerk's apology. And he said, you're absolutely correct. And I said, well, you know, you lucky and I'm lucky, and all of us in this country are very fortunate that de Klerk didn't abandon apartheid because it was morally wrong. I said, had he gone to his people and said, my dear people, we must abandon apartheid because it's immoral, he would have been out of office within 24 hours. 
He went to his people and he said, My dear people, if we don't abandon apartheid, we're going to be killed. That they could understand. And they, and they joined him, literally in a 180 degree turn. It was an amazing feat of, of, of leadership that with, with virtually no notice, his whole caucus, the whole government party, went with him uh, in reversing the course of South Africa and in abandoning apartheid. So it, it, it was very fortunate having, having that leadership skill uh, on the white side and of course what was even more crucial the ability of Mandela to, to convince whites uh, that, that they wouldn't be giving up their, their lives, let alone their, uh, their property, uh, if they agreed uh, to, to a democratic uh, South Africa. Uh, so let me, let me stop there by saying, uh, by, 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 by emphasizing the, the good fortune of having good leadership. It's a great pity that, that many other situations of, of problem and violence around the world uh, that there isn't that there isn't that sort of leadership available. Thank you very much. I'll be very happy to to respond to questions and comments. Mina? So I wonder if you can say a little bit. You were talking about the Bill of Rights and how all rights were actually universally agreed upon, except for the right to or the the, the issue of the death penalty, which was then dealt with by the mm. one of the first decisions of the Constitutional Court. So I wondered about property rights provisions in particular. I mean, they seem very much a compromise, uh, as in black South Africans can hardly have been supportive of strong property rights protections. And, and then you get the social economic rights added to it as well, which can hardly have been very much supportive. Like, hardly have been enjoying great support from the sort of more wealthy white population. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is the protection of LGBT rights. Of what rights? Right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if you right. can say something about Well, you know, as I say, South Africa had been working through uh, the whole question of human rights as part of the anti-apartheid movement. And the, the uh, many, many members of the international community, and, and, and no less the United States, in fact, the United States played a key role uh, in, 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 in assisting um, um, progressive South Africans uh, to, to work towards uh, a, a, an all-embracing uh, bill of, of, of fundamental human rights. Um, none of us, <coughs> none of the 11 original justices of the Constitutional Court had ever had any formal training in human rights or in constitutional law. <coughs> law schools in South Africa didn't teach human rights or constitutional law because it was irrelevant. They, both topics were irrelevant. We didn't have a constitution, and, and we spurned human rights. So we were all, in effect, self-taught. And the United States um, uh, uh, stepped into a breach. We were abandoned uh, by, the, by the legal professions, in, in England particularly, as being beyond the pale. <coughs> but the United States and Canada uh, played an important role uh, in, in, in making up for uh, in, in, in beginning to fill that vacuum. And uh, it was, as, as I mentioned, whites and blacks wanted a broad, a broad Bill of Rights. And uh, the, 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 um, way it, the way it was done, the, the interim constitution in, in its schedule of what was required to be in the final constitution provided that there had to be an entrenched Bill of Rights which had to include all universally accepted fundamental human rights. Universally accepted fundamental human rights. And there was a lot of argument in our certification procedure when the Constitution, when the, when the first draft of the new Constitution was put to us, about what were universally accepted fundamental human rights. And one of them, I, 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 the, one of the white parties, said that the Bill of Rights was, was, was lacking in it, it didn't provide for the protection of the ownership of property. Uh, it provided for non-expropriation, but it didn't provide for the right to own private property. And we looked around the world, and you know, we only found one constitution that protected the right to private property. The United States Constitution doesn't have it. None of the European constitutions have it. The only one that had it is India. 
which, which is interesting. But but we we came to the uh, to the conclusion that this is not a, 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 a universally accepted fundamental human right. Um, the African National Congress always insisted on equal rights for the gay and lesbian community. And we were fortunate in South Africa that this wasn't either a party or a colour issue. The, 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 there was a well-organised gay and lesbian uh, uh, community in South Africa with a, with a national organisation that was very multiracial and multicultural. So it wasn't, it wasn't a race issue or a, a political issue. And that went through really without a great deal of debate. There were some conservative people in, 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 in some of the churches who opposed it, but it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't questioned. And it's interesting that the, that the um, gay and lesbian decisions on our constitutional court, there have been five fundamental uh, 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 decisions, starting with, with, with the, outlaw, the, the outlawing of, uh, of sodomy and dealing, dealing with um, uh, ending up with, with, with instructing uh, a, a, a parliament to provide for gay uh, and for, for, for single-sex marriages um, uh, unanimous decisions of the constitutional court. I don't believe there's another constitutional court in the world that would have reached unanimity, 11 to nothing, on all of these issues, including, uh, including uh, um, uh, single-sex uh, marriage. So we, we were fortunate in that the movement to a Bill of Rights gathered momentum and nobody really in the constitutional negotiations uh, objected to any, any of these rights, save, as I said, the death penalty. That was the first case to come before our constitutional court, and the court again unanimously held the constitution to be, uh, uh, held the death penalty uh, to be inconsistent with the Bill of Rights, and that was effectively the end of the death penalty in South Africa. It's interesting, when, 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 the, when the Constitution went back for the second time, the Constitutional Assembly was free to include the death penalty. But, but the, 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 the white leaders, in fact, gave up on the issue, uh, and the, the final Constitution, as we call it, um, uh, makes no provision for the death penalty, and therefore the decision of the Constitutional Court declaring it unconstitutional under the similar provision of the earlier Bill of Rights um, stands. Social and economic rights, there was resistance from the white community leaders, some of them, uh, to, to having social and economic rights. But the black leaders insisted. They said if this constitution is to have credibility amongst all of our people, there must be social and economic rights. He said the majority of our people are not particularly interested in the right of free speech or the right of assembly uh, and, uh, and the other negative rights. They want housing they want education and they want health care. And if that isn't in the Constitution as, justici as justiciable rights, the Constitution just won't have credibility. And again, the, the, the white leaders um, 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 compromised, in fact gave up uh, any argument against it. It was opposed in our court hearings by, by one group. Uh, they, they said it was inconsistent with the separation of powers, which was a fundamental requirement of the Constitution, uh, but our Constitutional Court, again unanimously, uh, had no problem uh, in, uh, in finding that social and economic rights are in no way inconsistent uh, with the separation of powers. Uh, I hope I've one, one would need a few hours to do justice to your questions, but let me, let me leave it at that. How worried were you that the Constitutional Court would not be Sorry, I didn't hear. In the decision making, how worried were you that the constitutional court would be ignored or, or rejected in terms of your decisions? And how important was it to get unanimity? Well, it's an important question. I, 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 it was on my list, but I ran out of time. And that was, again, Nelson Mandela's um, um, understanding of what a constitutional democracy means and, uh, and his, his, his reverence for the rule of law. And, and his respect for the Constitutional Court. Um, let me give you one example. The day the court's opinion came out on the death penalty, there was great consternation in the white community, particularly that the court had, 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 had set aside the death penalty as unconstitutional. And de Klerk was then one of the two deputy presidents in a government of national unity 
that we had in South Africa for the first two years of democracy. It broke up after two years, but at that time de Klerk was one of two vice presidents together with Thabo Mbeki. And de Klerk, on the day our opinion came out, said, I'm not questioning the correctness of the decision, but he said, I'm convinced that the majority of South Africans, black and white, want the death penalty. And I suggest, he said, we have a referendum. And if in the referendum the majority of South Africans want the death penalty, we should amend the Bill of Rights. Mandela, the same evening on television, said, I'm surprised to hear one of my deputy presidents suggest that we should rule by referendum. He said, I don't mind. He said, I have a healthy majority out there. If we're going to rule by referendum, by all means, let's rule by referendum. He said, but I suggest two questions, not one in the first referendum. Question one, should South Africa bring back the death penalty? If the majority say yes, we'll amend the constitution. He said, question two, we should ask the majority of South Africans whether white South Africans should be allowed to keep the property they've acquired in the last 300 years. Well, there's never been another suggestion of a <laughs> referendum. Uh, but it, it, it was a great lesson to South Africans about what the Bill of Rights means and that part, even the 100% of the members of Parliament cannot go below the threshold that is set uh, by the Bill of Rights. One of the early cases the court had dealt with the delegation by the cabinet, by Mandela's government, um, uh, sorry, the, the delegation by parliament to the cabinet of the rulemaking power for our first local government elections, our first municipal elections. The constitution, the interim constitution then said parliament shall make the rules. Parliament got over busy, there was a lot of work to be done and it got to the end of the uh, uh, parliamentary session and the elections were about two months away, Parliament passed a resolution by an overwhelming majority delegating its rulemaking power to the executive. And the cabinet made rules. They weren't very controversial, but one of the smallest parties came to the constitutional court and said that these rules are unconstitutional because the constitution says Parliament must do it. And that's not delega that cannot be delegated. Well, in an 8-3 to three opinion, our court agreed with that small party, and we set aside the rules. The, by this time, the elections were three weeks away, and Parliament would have to, would have to reconvene. 400, 600 members of Parliament from around the country, would, a large country, would have to all fly into Cape Town. And Mandela, again immediately, the same day, said, he said, we're grateful to the Constitutional Court. Their job is to tell us when we go wrong. And they've told us we've gone wrong, and I'm recalling Parliament. He said, it's a pity it's got to be done at great expense and inconvenience, but if we've done it wrong, we have to do it right. And he said, uh, we, we respect the Constitutional Court for doing its job. And that was the first of a few cases where the government lost uh, important cases in the Constitutional Court where Mandela didn't question the correctness of the Constitutional Court's uh, uh, opinion or, or the government's uh, intent on immediately complying with the order. And, and I'm happy to say that that, that, uh, ground, uh, uh, that ground setting work of Nelson Mandela has continued. And his successors, uh, Mbeki and Zuma, um, have, 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 have in no way uh, questioned uh, the, the enforcement of constitutional court decisions. As the chairman of the most important Truth and Reconciliation Commission that we've seen, how would you assess the strengths and weaknesses of using Truth and Reconciliation Commissions as a way to, uh, after conflict, uh, put countries back together? Well, it's, it's, a very, it's a very important process. The, the, the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission so far is unique in having an amnesty as part of it, um, which, which was important because there was, a, there was a, a carrot and a stick. The carrot was you get amnesty, you won't be prosecuted. Uh, the stick is if you don't confess and get amnesty, you will be prosecuted. And uh, on, uh, on the, uh, under that pressure, many apartheid uh, police and, 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 and army officers came forward 
with, with full <coughs> confessions of the most terrible crimes, awful crimes, torture and murders uh, uh, committed during, during the uh, latter years of the apartheid era. The Truth Commission also received testimony from over 21,000 victims. Either uh, they gave oral evidence or they put in, they put in sworn uh, affidavits of what happened to them. And that was an important outpouring of information. The most popular television program that there's ever been in South Africa was during the two years of the Truth Commission. Every Sunday evening there was a, an hour summary on television, on public television, of the hearings of the Truth Commission. And they held many hearings uh, during, during each weekday. And millions of South Africans were glued watching the terrible, hearing the terrible confessions and the evidence of, of, uh, of victims. Victims of peop uh, uh, family members where people had been, had been killed, people who'd been tortured, people who'd been uh, 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 imprisoned uh, without trial for many years and so forth. The result is that <coughs> the, the effect of the Truth Commission has really been effective in stopping denials. Without the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there would have been, broadly speaking, two t versions of the truth. There would have been a predominantly black version, which would have approximated the truth because the victims know what happened to them. But there would have been a continuation of the fabricated denials that, that were a mark of the apartheid era. The South African police and the South African government put out denials, fabricated uh, evidence, which white people believed. It was comfortable to believe the, the, the denials rather than to accept uh, the crimes that had been committed in the name of, uh, of the, uh, particularly uh, of, uh, of the white South African electorate. And uh, so, so, so the, the, the Truth Commission has resulted in one history. The history that's taught in schools and universities is the history that's come out of the Truth Commission. And it also helped pave the way for grand, to use an American expression, which I hesitate to use in the South African context, affirmative action. But in South Africa, the black government, uh, black government has spent many billions of South African rands on undoing some of the deprivations of the past, upgrading black, black areas, uh, putting down roads, building shopping centers, uh, sports facilities, uh, good schools, uh, good, uh, uh, better trained teachers. And the, the Truth Commission, I have no doubt, has made it a lot more difficult for white taxpayers who are paying for this in the beginning. It's now 20 years, but it's still going on. I think without the Truth Commission, there would have been a lot more resistance and, uh, uh, and, 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 and opposition uh, to, to those sorts of programs. So it's difficult to, to suggest that the, the South African-style Truth Commission uh, would, would work in other countries. I think one's got to look at the uh, local situation. But one thing I've got no doubt, and that is in the uh, aftermath of serious human rights violations, it's crucially important, and this is something Mandela realised, it's crucially important uh, for, for the truth to be made public and in particular for victims to be given the acknowledgement uh, that comes with, 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 the public, with, with making public uh, what the deprivations were that they had to undergo. Just time for one more question, one last question. You spoke of the, the difference that leadership made in, in the presence of President Mandela, as well as the importance of the Bill of Rights. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of civil society in the ongoing evolution of South Africa, given the relative lack of leadership that many South Africans feel their experience. During, during, the, during that period? During that period and, and perhaps looking into the future a bit. Well, civil society in South Africa played a crucial role. Um, and a grain let me, let me, and I do it with a great deal of pleasure, give credit to the United States for having been responsible more than uh, any other country or any other source uh, for building up civil society uh, to support uh, democratic change. Um, in, 19, in 1979, the first ever human rights conference was held in South Africa at the University of Cape Town. <coughs> it was convened at the, uh, at the uh, it was the, really the idea and was paid for 
uh, by American foundations, particularly Carnegie and Ford. And in 1979, a human rights conference was almost like going to, to the moon in South Africa. But fortunately, one of our senior judges at that time, he, was, he became the last apartheid chief justice, Michael Corbett, who became very friendly with Mandela, Corbett very courageously called for a Bill of Human Rights in 1979. But was it, what was important was at that conference two organizations were formed. One was the Legal Resources Center, which was based on the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP in this country. And the person who came to South Africa to help set it up and spent many, many weeks uh, in South Africa was, was uh, then uh, was, was, uh, Jack Greenberg, who was then the, the, the director of the Legal Defense Fund before he went to become a professor of law at Columbia. Uh, but but he, he played an important role. And money came for the Legal Resources Center, which established rights for black South Africans in the last decade of apartheid. Uh, with, without, without those efforts, and they were very important, they brought rights and, and relief to many, many millions of black South Africans. And the Legal Resources Center was, was, was in fact, the founding director uh, was Arthur Chaskelson, who became the first uh, Democratic Chief Justice of South Africa. He'd also appeared as counsel uh, for Mandela in his, in his treason trial. Uh, so so they, they played a very important role and I don't believe I'm exaggerating when I say that without the Legal Resources Centre, respect for the judiciary would have died in those last 10 years. But the Legal Resources Centre started using the apartheid bench uh, to bring relief and good things for uh, black South Africans. The second body founded at the 1979 conference uh, was Lawyers for Human Rights which brought together many hundreds of uh, anti-apartheid progressive lawyers in South Africa who provided pro, uh, pro bono defense uh, for many, many thousands of black South Africans in those last 10 years. So it, it, was, it, was, it wouldn't have happened without a push from the United States. And uh, it, it, it really, I, I have no doubt, made a huge difference uh, to, to, to the manner in which South Africa was, a, was able to move uh, from the dark days of apartheid to, uh, to um, uh, democracy. Many other areas of civil society. The churches in South Africa we were very lucky. There was no religious issue. And that I think distinguishes South Africa, perhaps with Rwanda, uh, are two countries where there was huge violence, not caused by religious differences. And that, that's a huge positive negative, if I can put it that way. And the, 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 the churches in South Africa generally worked uh, uh, towards, towards democratic rule in South Africa. There were many, many other um, uh, civil society organizations, political, so, uh, social, social welfare, and others uh, that, that, that together with, with some business leaders in South Africa made a difference. But certainly, the transition wouldn't have been possible without a very big uh, input uh, from, from civil society.